everyone. Once again, it is Dan Kelson, the host of Next Future Today and the chief evangelist for Plexicam.com. Today, my guest is Luke Homan. He is the chief innovation officer for Applied Frameworks. He's somebody that I've known for at least 10 years or so. Uh, I know him primarily from his original, to me, book. It turns out he's written four or five, depending on how you count them. But Innovation Games is the book that really turned me on to what Luke has done with his career, which is sort of, to me, there's a logical connection to his latest book, which is Software Profit Streams, which is really about using simple tools on the surface that actually go very deep and help to map out exactly where profit comes from in software specifically. Uh, Changing models, licensed versus SaaS and subscription-based, or how do you price when new functionality is added on or maybe new integration like a marketplace or something like that comes along. Uh, of course, if you know me at all, I like to twist tools into using them in different ways. So it's not always to me about software profit streams. It's how do you think about profit in general? How do you think about how things would be priced? Do you price against a competitor? Are you pricing for value? Are you pricing as a premium? Things like that. We talk a whole about a whole bunch of things, despite the fact that Software Profit Streams, his latest book, is very specifically about that one area. We do talk about that in this interview, but we talked about a lot of things. Uh, we both have experience in user experience, talking about how that impacts uh, how you think about doing software design and how much is too much to, to worry about for uh, usability, for example, or how do you more rapidly evolve your solution. Uh, Luke has a very distinct agile background that he's been pursuing for years and years and years and uh, is very well known in that community. So there's a lot that we talk about there. How do you write books? Uh, They wrote this book by hand, he and his co-author, and uh, sent photos to a designer that turned into a, a wonderful book along the lines of sort of the legacy of Value Proposition Design, which is the second book after Business Model Generation and Business Model Canvas. So this is uh, very much full of uh, great images and artworks and frameworks that help to uh, sort of support and reduce the need for so many words that a lot of more traditional business books might force you to go through. We cover a lot in this. Uh, Luke is very deep. Uh, and widely read and widely experienced person. So we pursued a whole bunch of tangents that I think you'll find valuable. If you really, really only want to know about software profit streams themselves, you should read the book, go follow what Luke is doing in in his company and the services they provide. If you want a bigger context that that is sitting within, then I think this interview is probably for you. Let's take a look. Luke, it is so good to see you again. It's been, God, years and years since we were in person, like Las Vegas. Yeah, Las Vegas-ish. And it's kind, of, <laughs> it's kind of fun. Dan, though, you're one of those people I have on my bookshelf and one of my friends who we're, we have this orbiting kind of thing. Like we, we come close together, we come far apart, but we're never like not connected. Yeah, it's funny when when I when I met you uh, and interviewed you in Vegas back then, uh, I felt that I already knew you because I had read Innovation Games, and I, I'd found that because I was I, uh, 2004. Uh, we got acquired. Delphi Group got acquired by Pro Systems, and we were the Innovation Lab. 
So I wanted to find out who are the smart people in innovation and innovation games, among other things, it's fun. And there's a lot of super dry <laughs> innovation stuff out there, but, you know, business in general. Uh, and just, you know, from that, I could sense, you know, the sort of vibe of how you work. Plus, I was already an early fan of Agile and Scrum and, and things like that. So it just made a lot of sense. I felt like when we sat down next to each other with no prep whatsoever, that we just had a great conversation. Sadly, the production company that hired me to do that, they never published the damn interview. <laughs> but at least we had a good time. <laughs> we did have a good time. And and it's you, you can definitely tell it. I think it's partly when... Um, People share these deeper values. They share these deeper intellectual values, not just mm. personal values, but just these kind of ways of working. Um, and we talk about that in the Agile community. We talk about, oh, how do I work and and what am I doing? And right. But you have to have kind of the underlying value of mm -hmm. collaboration or even the Agile manifesto values. Yeah. <laughs> and when you have those and when you, when you kind of embody them deeply, people become friends overnight. It's a regular occurrence in the home and household that I'll be, oh, hey, Dan's coming over for dinner. And my wife will be like, who's Dan? And where did you meet him? Oh, I met him on a plane or I met him in Vegas. <laughs> and I was like, and you're inviting them to my home. I'm like, yeah, he's a great guy. And, right. and then she's like, okay. And, and then the family meets someone new and we just have a great time. <laughs> I don't think I'd do that as much anymore. But you know, when, when I was early on and using LinkedIn, yeah which I thought I'd totally miss. I actually, I'd leverage using my network that I built up on LinkedIn. And it was fairly, let's say, promiscuous in, in how I connected with people on, on LinkedIn because I thought, you know, why not up the odds that an interesting connection will happen? I took a trip to Denmark to present at a conference and I was terrified because I didn't speak any Danish, uh, but I had all these connections that knew me mostly because of innovation or Enterprise 2.0 or, you know, different different things that were like a, professional sort of reason to be connected. And I reached out to all those folks, said, hey, for the first time I'm in my life and I have Danish ancestry, I'm going to come to Denmark. And by the way, do I need to know how to speak Danish? And they said, you know, everybody speaks English. Uh, it's not like going to France, for example, uh, where <laughs> they do speak English, but they want to make you feel terrible. Uh, and I got like personal tours of Copenhagen and Aarhus and all yes. sorts of things I would have never stumbled onto. So I... We're definitely we have we share some values and uh, sort of I don't know randomness to a certain extent, but uh, being open to experiments and, and learning new things, which is a major yeah. reason why I do this kind of podcast. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it is a truism for me too that uh, I've, I've been fortunate for business to travel the world, and people are the more I travel, the more I believe that people are fundamentally good. And deep down, we're just humans. Just to have that that gift of of meeting people, and you're like, wow, they're just really nice. <laughs> so let's talk about the the new book. So, and I didn't realize you've written how many books at this point? Well, this is it's funny how we count. Um, I <laughs> I count it as five. My wife counts it as four because one of the books is an ebook only, and she's like, it doesn't count. It's an ebook, and I'm like, it counts. It's an ebook. <laughs> So, so you could count it as four or five, but I'll count it as number five. So, why write another book? Because you've done it many times before, and you know it's a pain in the ass. So, <laughs> why do this one? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, 
Oh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is um, I, I think people write when they feel that there's almost a calling. Uh, you know, when you mm -hmm. wrote your book, you were filling a hole. You mm -hmm. you saw a need in the market, just like any other product or service sure. or solution. I had written a little bit about the interplay between business uh, concerns and technology 20 years ago in my book, Beyond Software Architecture. Okay. And I talked a little bit about licensing and things like that. And I realized since then, no one had advanced that, that body of knowledge. What I, what I like to say is with great respect, they're all written by boomers for boomers. And so, <laughs> so they're, they're super text dense. Yeah. There's graphs and charts and the issue, the biggest issue is they treat software like a pen. And, and so these books have all this advice and you start to scratch your head and you're like, well, does that really work for a licensed intellectual property? Does that really work when you've got upgrades and there's, there's right. no law governing the use of my pen. There's no GDPR. There's no California CCPA. There's no HIPAA about the data. And I realized that for software people like us, for people who know technology, our mental model is completely different. But, and you asked like, why would I write another book? Well, partly because uh, I like to challenge myself and I participated in a few exits. So I'm kind of like that standard Silicon Valley entrepreneur. And, but you still are hungry and you still feel like you can contribute and you're not done yet. And you don't mm. want to retire. I don't want to retire. You create these challenges. And, and in this book, I, I did, Jason and I agreed on a couple of challenges. The, the first challenge was to write a stunningly beautiful book. Now, that meant that we needed a great designer. And we found one with uh, Federico Gonzalez, Fede. He would take our sketches and he would convert them into the absolutely stunningly beautifully laid out book that you have in front of you. The second thing is that we wanted to write fewer words. We actually did some research and what we found is that the average length of books are getting a little longer because people are writing and they're collaborating and they just keep piling on words, piling on <laughs> words, piling on words. And you're like, yep. I don't need all that. And so right. for the listeners, before we started the podcast uh, recording, I was sharing with Dan that we literally wrote the book by hand. I don't mean figuratively, I mean, Literally with paper and yeah. colored pencils. You still have the stack of paper we, there? Yeah, I still. Yeah. <laughs> so for the listeners, let me grab this. This this is the book, and and you can see like the the pictures that are in the book and the canvases and the way the book is. I'm trying to find a, a you know the the colors and the and the mm. shading and all that kind of stuff. We would write by hand, tape the images to the wall take photos, send them to Fede. He had to transcribe our rights. So we learned to write more neatly. Hell yeah. yeah. So we would print and then um, uh, we would just go iterate. And the, the end result is this very beautifully created and very useful and easy to access content. Yeah. So that, so I'm glad, see, I, I have a plan. So uh, when I do interviews and never quite sure how, where we're going to dodge and weave, so we, 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 which is fine. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, one of the things that you talk about relatively early on is so 
called crossing the chasm model or the Rogers and Evans diffusions of innovation, the, the bell curve of, to me, yes. I always thought about it as adoption. More of my work in the past has been about helping enterprises, executives, managers, employees figure out where they are in the adoption of some, you know, like a new way of working that's much more collaborative instead of individually, you know, individual contributor centered. So how do you identify the people within your organization that are the innovators, that are the laggards, that are the mainstream? And how do you deal with each of those? Which is, I, I like to flip things upside down and, and to use them in inappropriate ways, potentially. Um, <laughs> but there's these, you know, there's different slices. And I, I, I tend to, even for like consumer or B2B facing, you know, selling it to somebody else, I used to think of those slices are, is that product or solution or service or whatever, is it ready for that slice? But right. when I read in your book that business leaders who can identify the adoption category of the customers are in a better position to design pricing strategies that close sales faster. And that whole close sales faster piece, I thought, holy shit, I haven't thought that. I, that would have never occurred to me. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's one is like, so to me, it's potentially that slice are they allergic to what you're pitching is sort of how I was thinking about it, or are they ready to adopt it? But that's just one piece. And, you know, and now here we are 15 years or so after business model generation came out. And now we're finally talking about like, this is no, because you understand that segment, you can, you can really speed right. things up, not just in the development, like agile sense, but in the, how do we make money <laughs> and how do they yeah. derive value? How do we derive value? How do we make money? I think that there's an important part about the a shape curve of adoption or diffusion of innovations from, from Everett Rogers. There's actually a couple of things that I wanted to add to the book. And it was one of those things where a picture was able to communicate it so much more effectively than a bunch of blah, blah, blah text. The first is, and this is one of the deepest principles in the book, is that um, pricing evolves over time. The pricing strategy and the price itself has to evolve over time. And the pricing for the adopters, uh, the innovators, so, so if we want to get the categories right, like the pricing for the innovators, it's uh, when I've done true innovator stuff, it's, sometimes it's in my enterprise work, it's been like, what do you pay? I just need a sale. Tell me what right. you need to pay. And then we're going <laughs> back and forth and I'm using it to calibrate but when I hit my uh, early majority, my pricing is set. And when I hit my late majority, I'm probably raising prices because these are the people who are willing to wait. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, Dan, that I think is important is, and I think this gets lost in the, the, the traditional literature about diffusion of innovation, is that people assume that an innovator in the adoption category is an innovator about everything in their life. That's yep. not true. No, right. It's 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 an individual relationship to a given product or service. In my own personal life, I am an innovator about some things, and I'm actually a laggard about certain things. That leads me to a related concept that I want to point out uh, that we talked about earlier with the you know the difference between software and a pen. Sure. In in the in the pen world, the price is kind of a number. It's like here's your pen. It costs you so much. In the software solution world pricing isn't a number, it's a system because that system is going to mm. include things like, like I can't upgrade this pen. Like when it's done, it's done. Now I tend to think of traditional uh, offerings as static. 
Yep. They don't change. And so you start to think about pricing not as a number, but pricing as a system. And that system includes the adopter categories and the strategy. So right. that's one of the really important um, uh, tenants or, or theses that guided our writing was pricing is not a number, it's a system and pricing evolves as the solution evolves. It's funny because the, all these books that are in the style that, that you've pursued, they appear to be really simple on the surface, but there's a lot of depth into it. To have systems that you can actually use to leverage and like do do revisions. Like this is when we launched in Q1 of 2022, this is what we thought of value proposition was. And here's our software, our, our pricing strategy and our, and our models and all that stuff. And then if I was going to go really nuts and think out of the box, how can you you know, pump in simulations that say, hey, what happens if we increase the price here for this one feature or whatever? You could do all sorts of fun stuff. So and we don't need to give away anything you might be doing. No, but no, but that's that's absolutely <laughs> a natural. So there's two forms of simulation that, that you want to be able to use, right? One form of simulation is a simulation to build your own mental model and your own reasoning. One of the things that we talk about in the book is this notion of external triggers. When do I change my pricing? Well, I'm going to change my pricing on one of three things. There's a there's a time-based cadence, meaning if you just just put in a clock. If you haven't looked at your pricing at least once a year, you 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 need to do it. Like just yep. a clock. The second is an internal trigger, and that's we call that the agency of your own company. I've put out a new release, I've added functionality, I've moved up the adoption curve. When I'm adding all this value, I I got to start to 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 decide if I'm going to charge for it. But the third category is um, external triggers. And there's we, we list over 10 different kinds of external triggers. You could have regulatory changes like the CCPA yeah. or emerging privacy standards. You could have competitive force triggers. You could have suppliers changing what they're giving you. Something that you were relying on uh, goes away. Or if you're in hardware, if you're a hardware solution, the hardware itself changes. Yeah. And and so the, the 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 concern I have going back full circle the concern I have of of relying too much of a simulation of your own environment is that by definition it's what you don't know you don't know and you know that from your innovation background oh yeah <laughs> that external trigger that you weren't taking account of in the development of your simulation is precisely the weakness that can hurt you the most so I think simulations that build your mental model simulations that that create common language that enable a group of people to, to respond to a trigger are, are very valuable. Simulations that try and say, oh, you're going to put your pricing in and you run the simulation and you're going to get this sale. I'm not as sure yet about those things. Humans need this kind of collaborative model to make these higher price decisions. And the example I use, uh, it's this isn't in the book, but it's what I'm teaching is, you and I are smart enough, we're experienced enough, and we are fully capable of selling our home on our own if we wanted to sell our home on our own you know, mm. for sale by owner. Yep. We rarely do that because it's such an important transaction that, and it's so expensive relative to our net worth that we want a person who's been doing this frequently because when we're doing something infrequently, it in, in, it increases our risk, even if we're capable of doing it. And pricing is that way. Even though we talk about in the book that you don't want to go in a fast growing product, you don't want to go more than six months. And in a, even in a slow growth product, you don't really want to go longer than a year without revisiting your pricing. 
Yep. But in the agile community, one year is like seven regular years, right? It's yeah. like dog years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that's where you need a book like this and, and, and some, some, some support because it is infrequent. It's not like managing your backlog or updating your roadmap or getting feedback from your customers or running your daily sprints or your quarterly um, planning intervals. Your, your, your program, right? Your, your solution it's going to be more frequent for those kinds of activities. For pricing, it's a little less frequent. So that's when you want to hopefully have our book as a guide. Like, oh, it's time to, it's it's been a year. Okay, what do I need to do? Oh, I need to do a snapshot. I need to look at this. I need to look at this. Okay, and if I'm going to make a price change, I need to communicate. How do I communicate a price change? How do yeah. I communicate packaging? And we go through those processes in the book because, again, it's infrequent. It's not like the the release I'm doing every couple of weeks where I'm putting out release notes and like, hey, here's the new version of such and such. Yeah, even if you're on a, a relatively fast deployment schedule like Salesforce, uh, you know, does quarterly releases, they have a lot more experience because they do quarterly releases and they've done it for 20 years-ish. Um, yeah. They have a lot more experience than than most communications departments or marketing or whoever it is that's doing it. So one thing I like to wrap up on for for this podcast next feature today is uh it's kind of like the you know the the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago but hey you didn't so <laughs> you should do that now so for people that are interested in um profit streams for software or for any other things is for me i like to play with things outside of the normal realm that are <laughs> conceived in mm -hmm. what what should they spend their first 30 minutes on if they wanted to pursue any of the concepts that you talk about in the book well, for us, the foundation of everything is actually doing a customer benefit analysis. And what that means is is finding and forcing yourself. Like it's, Sometimes you have to force yourself, like putting a number on economic value or economic structure. And, and what I mean by that is let's go back to a different company that we, we work with a lot. It's weird. I have this barbell structure where I work with a lot of startups and I work with a lot of absolutely huge companies in the fortune 1000. Mm. So going, going on to the, the startup side, cause their forces are a little less complex because they're not so huge. One of the companies we worked with was Fullcast, and they do revenue operations and uh, they're, they're, they're growing. And they said something like, well, we can't charge as much as, our bigger competitor that I won't name because we don't have as many features or functions as our bigger competitor. In the customer benefit analysis, I said, well, you're overweighting on your tangible benefits or your functional benefits. I said, you've told me that, that some of the reasons you're making sales is because you're nicer to work with, you're more flexible in your contracts, you're willing to listen. And when customers have a problem, you're willing to adjust, which is a, which is a common characteristic of small companies, right? They said, yeah. I said, well, you're, you're discounting that value to zero. And, I, and they said, what do you mean? I'm like, those are all intangible benefits of working with full cast. And they're like, right. And then I'm like, okay, let me try and make the connection. They're coming to you because you're a nice company to work with that listens and changes your software to better meet your customer needs. You haven't ossified yet. And they're like, oh, is that a benefit? I'm like, yes, this is an intangible benefit. <laughs> and it's worth something. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah. And so they started to realize that um, uh, now, is it hard to put a number on intangible benefits? Sure. 
Yep. Do we do it all the time? It's called goodwill in your balance sheet. It's brand. It's it's things like that. And so yeah. I I think that you know, Dan, the 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 foundation is a very um, simple foundation, but it's a very rich foundation. It's understanding what the benefits are, and then what we did in the book, which I I'm I'm personally proud of, is we took all of the software illities, reliability, maintainability, securability, scalability, and we recast them into current or future economic terms, meaning reliability is an attribute of the illities that I care about right now. It's it's about now. I want a reliable solution. I don't want a reliable solution five years from now or next <laughs> year. I want it right yeah, now. Exactly. Obviously, extensibility is a future thing. Can I extend the solution in the ways that I need to as I evolve? So one of the things that we've done in the book is and I don't know of any other book that does this, is we've taken all of the illities, but we've recast them into these economic uh, structures of now or future. And mm. again, that starts to inform how we price and license our solution in terms of what value we're providing our software. So for people who want to get started and they didn't start with the book, that's okay. Start with your customer benefit analysis. And then from there, a lot of things will fall out. So, hey, uh, great, great catching up with you again. Uh, congratulations on Software Profit Streams. Um, uh, it, it really is. It's it's interesting that it was that there was this obvious gap that nobody bothered to fill, and and you, you and you jumped in there. And it's it is so. Like the more that I read through the book, I was like, oh my god, there's one wow, and then two, oh my god, there's like what I thought I knew about anything was this this deep, as it turns out, and then <laughs> somehow in some beautifully packaged. 20, 30 pages, it goes, <laughs> it's just crazy. So congratulations on synthesizing all that and making it understandable, not just from a simplistic, like, oh, now I understand pricing is a thing. No, there's <laughs> there's a lot to it. By the way, here's everything you need to know. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, we're we're really happy, really proud, and uh, we, we cannot wait to get the book into people's hands. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Luke. Uh, great, to, great to catch up. And I'm sure we will be talking again much sooner than, <laughs> than our last guest. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Thank All you, right. Dan. Thanks, Luke.